Hello, welcome to the Kings and Beatles Daily Deep Dive. I'm your host, Tony Fry. This is episode 227. Thank you for anybody joining me live on YouTube right now. And to anybody watching or listening after the fact, uh, I hope you'll go back and check out the rest of our catalog and join us live one day. The schedule for all of our live events goes up about a week in advance on YouTube, so you can actually set reminders um, if you would like to join us. And we are trying out different times, so they're not all going to be the same time of day. I want to try to get as many time zones in as we can since we have listeners all over the world. Today, we are talking about the song Your Mother Should Know by The Beatles. It was released November 27, 1967 on the American Magical Mystery Tour LP and released in the UK on the Magical Mystery Tour double EP on December 8, 1967. The song closes the film, but it's the second song on the double EP and the second from the last song on the on side A of the LP. Side A, as we've talked about before, was music from the movie. Side B was some um, singles that didn't appear on albums from 1967. Paul actually proposed this track for the live Our World telecast, which was the first global satellite television broadcast. And um, the band wisely chose All You Need Is Love instead. I mean, I like this song. A lot, actually. I, I enjoy this song quite a bit. But All You Need Is Love is uh, the correct choice here. I mean, I can't imagine streaming to, you know, however many people that was. It was the biggest broadcast in history at that point and doing Your Mother Should Know. Um, Paul has claimed that he wrote this song uh, to address the issues of generation barriers which is a pretty heavy topic for a song that only has four lines of lyrics in it. I mean, you're taking on this deep subject and you couldn't have uh, committed fewer lines to this. I, I think, uh, you know my name, look up the number, I want you, she's so heavy, and we only do it in the, why don't we do it in the road, are probably the only songs in the Beatles catalog that have fewer actual lines of lyrics. The first session for this track actually took place at Chapel Studios, which is a rare excursion from Abbey Road. They didn't record outside of Abbey Road terribly often, but Abbey Road is booked solid at this time. They were actually kind of on a break between recording sessions. It had been quite a while um, since they were in the studio, and it, and it was going to be a little bit of while uh, before they were in the studio again. This kind of just happened uh, out of nowhere uh, over two nights, and Abbey Road was already booked. This uh, session was August 22nd, 1967, and they did eight takes of the song. And there were some technical difficulties transferring these recordings to the Abbey Road gear because the um, the tape speed is different. I think uh, Chapel Studios was like 30 um, uh, seconds, inches per second. I forget how, how it works, but it was half the speed to Abbey Road. Uh, performs in so there was some difficulties transferring that audio from one studio to the other but ultimately the foundation for the final track came from these sessions at chapel the next night the band did some overdubs and um, just some playback of the track and since it wasn't recorded at emi it's hard to know exactly what was recorded on each night i don't think they kept the notes 
uh, as meticulously as they did at EMI or Abbey Road um, because beyond the recognition that these sessions happened, there's not the instrumental breakdown that you get from other sessions that were done at Abbey Road. Um, it's also notable that on this August 23rd session, their manager, Brian Epstein, came to visit the studio, which wasn't an everyday occurrence. It wasn't uncommon, but it wasn't an everyday occurrence. Um, but he would pass away four days later, and this would be the last session he would ever attend. The following evening, the band meets the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and then travel to Wales the next day. So we're talking the 24th and the 25th for an extended visit. And they actually had a session scheduled on the 25th that they had to cancel because they just decided to up and go to Wales to go listen to the Maharishi. Of course, the longest session with the Maharishi would come many months later when they traveled to India um, in 68 between Magical Mystery Tour and the White Album is when they did that um, trip to India. So that's uh, end of August. You fast forward to September 16th. The band's back at Abbey Road. Um, Paul is not really impressed with the work they did at Chapel, so they start from scratch. And they record 11 takes of the song at this session. And if you listen to um, your, your Mother Should Know on Anthology 2, that take is taken from these sessions on September 16th, where you've got kind of the military-style snare drum and... Uh, it's definitely a different vibe from what we got on the final version. On September 29th, John and Paul um, went back to the chapel recordings. So they've thrown out the 11 takes that they did at Abbey Road. They've gone back to those original recordings, and they decide to add some bass and organ to those tracks. And after that, all that remained was uh, the mono and stereo mixing. So basically... The final version that we hear was done in two days. You had the initial, well, three days, I guess, the, the initial chapel sessions over two nights, and then these John and Paul overdubs like two months later. So it was a, it was a long process, but they finally got it done. Um, the song is often cited as being music hall style, and technically, I guess it is, just based on the chord progression and, and the swing. Um but the band didn't really record it in that style like they would for like when I'm 64 or how they're going to do Honey Pie on the next album. And the instrumental bridge sounds much more like 60s Psychedelia than 30s Swing with that organ melody and everything. So I think it's interesting how this has its roots in that music hall style, but the ultimate performance is, is not really performed in that way. And, you know, John referred to this kind of stuff as Paul's granny music. Um, because it was the grannies all liked it. Maybe it would have had a different um, feel if they had taken this approach with all of them. Not that I want them to change Honey Pie or When I'm 64, but it is a different approach that they're taking on this one. Um, the song is performed in a triplet swing, which is sort of between a shuffle and a standard swing. It's hard to describe. It's one of those things that if you are a jazz musician, you just kind of instinctively feel the difference um it's it was very popular with like vaudeville and music hall and some jazz bands like the glenn miller orchestra this was their swing so like if you can tell the difference between the count basie orchestra and the glenn miller orchestra it's because of that swing right the glenn miller orchestra is is more of a dunk a dunk a dunk a dunk it's like a light shuffle 
Um, and some guys would say that's not swing at all, but that's neither here nor there. The chords for the song begin in A minor. The song is essentially written in A minor, but Paul takes some liberties with the tonality pretty quickly in the verse. He opens on a one chord, followed by a six chord. Um, but the third chord, he's throwing in an A major chord. So we're in A minor, and by the third bar of the verse, he's throwing in an A major chord. And that A major chord is cool because it introduces a C sharp pitch, which you hear in some of the instrumentation and the word should. Your mother should know, should know. That's, that should is the C sharp. It should be your mother should know. If, it, if he was keeping it in minor, uh, it would be a, a slightly different melody on that chorus. So adding that C sharp, it opens up the harmony just enough to give you a cool little hook and then turns that um, should into a leading tone into the last word of that phrase. So it's a cool little uh, shift. But beyond that A major, he really more or less sticks to the a, uh, the key of A minor, which is a bit surprising when you think how happy and peppy this song feels. Um, the fact that he's in minor the whole time is, is a little bit surprising. But we've talked about Ray Davies doing that sometimes too. Uh, he's got happy songs in minors and, and sad songs in majors, and you can't really tell by listening to it until you really focus on the, on the chord tonality. Um, he does float between natural minor and harmonic minor, which um, basically for, for the analysis of this song only changes um, the five chord where he actually has a G-sharp as well. So um, like on this song, we've got a, a 1, a 6, to a major 1, to 4, to 6, to 3, to 1, to 5 of 6, to uh, 7, to 3, to a, a 5, 7 in harmonic minor. But most of those chords are in natural minor. And then for the, uh, for the coda, the tonic shifts to A major. So when they're just repeating that your mother should know, your mother should know, oh, 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 your mother should know, that right there, that no, that's indicated on the major, right? Your mother should know. It's the difference between the minor and the major. But he's, uh, he's just cycling through fourths on that one. So he's on an A chord, and then up a fourth to D, and then up a fourth to G, and then up a fourth to C, and then bounce back down to A and do it again. So he's just repeating this cycle of fourths. Again, like with um, other songs we've discussed from this album earlier, there's something very different about the sound on this track. Uh, if you're in the live chat right now, say hello, and this would be your chance to chime in with something. Um, maybe it's the heavy reliance on the Hammond organ, right? We have a ton of Hammond on Blue Jay Way. We have a ton of organ, like on Flying, there's some organ and Mellotron. There's organ and Mellotron on this track. Uh, there's there's Mellotron on Walrus. Like there's these kind of sustained keyboard things. They're all kind of with wobbly pitch, right? They're running that uh, organ through the, the rotary speaker. The, 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 the Mellotron, some of the instrumentation, just by the nature of how it's built, kind of comes off as... as Kind of an unsteady pitch, like a wobbly pitch. Um, so maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's the fact that the band is playing pretty loose on all these. Like the basic rhythm tracks on a lot of these tunes are very sparse. You know, you'll have 
acoustic guitar just strumming quarter notes or doing light arpeggios in the background um you don't have like Ringo's snare on a lot of the songs doesn't have the pop that it had on Revolver or Sgt. Pepper. Um, it's it's almost like he's playing it very light, you know, and you really hear the snare sound instead of the head. Uh, I don't know what it is exactly. Um, maybe it's the lack of heavy orchestration for a lot of these songs, you know, the, especially the Magical Mystery Tour. Until Walrus, there's not a ton of instrumentation on that side A beyond the Beatles. But then you get to Walrus and it's all, you know, that all goes out the window. But well, Walrus still somehow manages to maintain this feel. So you've got this real open, um, loose vibe to it that you don't really get on any other album. And, you know, and these tunes are very much like a transition between the Pepper era and the White Album era. This song in particular, I can hear a little bit of When I'm 64 in it. I can hear a little bit of While My Guitar Gently Weeps in it. But it doesn't sound like it belongs next to either one of them on an album. So it's really, this whole section of their output is really a transitional period from Pepper to White Album. It's got a little bit of what they've done and a little bit of what they're about to do. And Pink Floyd did that a lot too. Like I hear... uh, uh, wish you were here has a little bit of dark side it's got a little bit of animals right so it's like this gradual progression that that you have these stages and this is just one of those stages where it's on its way to something else and that normally wouldn't make a big deal about it other than the fact like we talked about that these sessions uh, were intertwined with pepper in a lot of ways a few of the songs were recorded during those sessions um the official Magical Mystery Tour session started three days later after the Pepper Sessions, the last Pepper Session wrapped. So there, you would expect a lot more Pepper sound on it. But they're really, they've already gone in a completely different direction. A week has passed, and they've gone on to a totally different direction musically. And I think it's really something. And, and I was just talking to somebody on, I think it was on Reddit today, um, because they had mentioned... The Magical Mystery Tour is the most solid album in the in the in the catalog, and it's hard to argue against that. The only argument you could really give me against that is that it's not Beatles canon. It is after the fact canon, right? They made it an official album, but this is not how they they did not put this album together. They only put together the EP, the double EP in in, in London. Um, that's the only argument you can give me about this album not being one of their most cohesive and solid works of the entire catalog and since i grew up on the cds i only know it as official canon and it is one of my favorite albums so that's about it for your mother should know it's a a simple song simple lyrics but it's effective uh it's a cool part in the movie maybe the best part of the movie uh, because they do this massive dance number like it's an old you know 40s or 50s mgm musical with the uh the band in white tucks and tails and there is a paula's dead clue for those of you keeping track in that sequence because um three of the beetles are wearing red carnations on their lapel and one beetle is wearing a black carnation on his lapel and of course that black carnation belongs to paul because he had died a year before 
I think we'll do a bonus episode on all the uh, Paula's Dead clues. It's uh, stupid and ridiculous, but it is kind of a fun little bit of trivia. All right, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can check me on the live chat of any of these videos. Like I said, swing by YouTube and find our channel to get um, all the information on when we'll be recording new episodes. You can call me at 925-494-1739, email me at kinksandbeats at herohabit.com, or find me on any social media um, that you could possibly think of. You can go, of course, to herohabit.com, push the podcast button at the top of the page, and it will give you all the ways you can listen or watch this podcast and contact me. I uh, hope you will join me again. Thank you for listening or watching. Take care of yourselves and be safe, everybody, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.